Holy Spirit, pray that you would come and take the words that we just read in Scripture and translate them into our hearts so that we can be changed by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with a poem that was written by a British man who is now a Christian, but he used to be in a gang when he was a, when he was a teenager, and it's about the first time he went to church. And some of it may sound a little harsh, but it, it gives a good glimpse of what church looks like to people who don't normally go. And he says, the first time I went to church was on a Sunday morning. And from what I'd heard, I figured I'd spend my whole time yawning. At 18 years of age or so, I thought I knew it all. My hair was long, my jeans were tight. I loved a knife and buckle fight. Provided mates stood left and right, and those we fought were small. But my mates and me, we'd never been, so off to church we filed. We marched inside, about three abreast, straight down the middle aisle. Some of us were smoking cigs. Ron was sucking candies. We sat in what they called a pew, and everyone around was dressed like dandies. Shh, shh, one old lady says, and the whole place buzzed. And Sam turns around and says, oh, do hush up. You make more noise than us. I came to church to listen, but I couldn't understand their talk. It was mumble, mumble, shifting sands, and words like judgment or reprimand. Well, me and my mates can't understand talk like that. We need someone who'll deal in things that's real. I'd listen to what he'd say. So is there anyone here right now who can explain to me, is Christ a myth, a madman's whim? Some say Christ can cure my sin. If he can, is there a way to contact him? Or will I die not knowing how? Look, I only came to church to see if they could offer hope, but everything that happened there was way outside my scope. Like afterwards, outside was a beggar on the grass. He held his hand out and people'd smile, but then they'd pass. I'm sure he reached for something real, for something more than cash. He begged them for a little cheer, but they pretended not to hear. And I got the message loud and clear. Church is middle class. Ouch. Now, fair or unfair, that is often how Christians are viewed. Just say the word church in our culture and it conjures up all kinds of images of judgmental preachers, lots of rules, and boring, boring, boring. I read a story about a 10-year-old boy named Andy who brought a friend of his to church. And the friend had never been before. And he had lots of questions. So when they came in, were handed a bulletin. The friend said, what does this mean? And Andy explained. And there were words in the songs he didn't understand. And he'd ask, what does this mean? And Andy would explain. And then, then the preacher got up to preach and conspicuously took off his watch and set it down on the pulpit wherever, where he could see it. And, and the boy said, well, what does that mean? And Andy said, not a darn thing. <laughs> boring, boring, boring. But when you look at Jesus, right, healing people, talking to prostitutes and sinners when he should have been making nice with pastors and politicians, somehow the word boring doesn't come to mind. As I've said before, most churches wouldn't hire Jesus. He'd be too radical. Calling the elders a brood of vipers, turning water into wine at the church picnic, right? You'd have to pull him aside. You can't do that, Jesus. Management nightmare, right? And the early church was just as radical, caring for the poor, sharing everything they had with each other. So how did that radical counterculture movement get associated with middle-class conventionality? We're talking about the book of Ephesians this summer, and one of its main themes is that God can do more than we can imagine in our lives, in our friendships, in our marriages. And in the passage we read today, the Apostle Paul says God can do more than we can imagine with church. 
that church as Jesus meant it to be should be anything but conventional and boring. And by church, I don't mean any one particular church. I mean Christ followers everywhere. Because biblically speaking, church is not a place. It's not an institution. Church is a community where we are set free, given an adventure, and where our deepest longings for connection, community, transcendence, and significance are met. And church should be more than we could imagine in a couple of ways. For starters, church should be a place of adventure. Look at the first word in this passage, therefore. As you've heard me say before, whenever there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. So obviously the passage that we just read hinges on the verses that precede it, which say, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, we were designed to be part of God's rescue operation to this planet. A church is a community of people who link arms together to partner with God in redeeming the world. The Bible calls the church the body of Christ, and I think it means that literally. We are literally Jesus' hands, feet, voice to a hurting world. And over history, the church has been an incredible force for good. Not that the church hasn't made mistakes. It has made mistakes. But you know what? Just parenthetically, even some of those mistakes weren't really done by the real church. Take, for instance, the example that they always used at Stanford when I was there. You know, the Crusades. Happened a thousand years ago, but people just bring them up all the time. You know what? The real church did not do that. Institutional religion coupled with state power did that. But the church, the people who were really following Jesus at that very same time were busy caring for the sick and, he, and caring for the poor and doing all kinds of good. For centuries, theologians like Augustine and John Calvin have distinguished between what they called the visible church, which by that they meant the institution of the church that you see, and the invisible church, which are all those saints scattered inside the church who really are committed to following Jesus. Truly believe it. And they overlap, obviously. And inside the visible church is the invisible church made up of folks who aren't just going through the motions but really mean it. And those folks have done a lot of good over the centuries. Hospitals, universities, poverty relief, civil rights, just to name a few. A great question to ask ourselves Am I a part of the invisible, true church? Or am I just part of the visible church going through the motions? Are we a part, are we just a part of churchianity? You know, we're like people in the poem I, I read, we get more concerned about irrelevant things like how someone dresses when they go to church than the really th important things like Jesus? Or are we really following Jesus in the adventure of his rescue operation to this world? One of the things I love about this church, it's always been true of this church, and those that we partner with, is we're part of God's rescue operation in dozens of ways. Whether it's the Center for Champions in Rwanda for street kids, helping people in need at the Jubilee Reach Center, the service day we're going to do, August 15th. Collectively, we are part of God's rescue mission to undo the damage that the devil has done. To me, there is no bigger adventure in life. And have you found your place in that adventure? If you haven't, pray about it. Stop by the Get Connected desk. After the service in the narthex, talk to a pastor. Church is meant to be a place of adventure. Second way that church can be more than we imagine is that church unites people. Especially people who seem impossible to unite. The passage we just read talks about how in the early church, Jesus united Jews and Gentiles. Which to us may not seem like a big deal, but as I've said before, that's like putting Israelis and Palestinians in the same Bible study. 
Jews and Gentiles hated each other. For centuries, Gentiles had oppressed the Jews, pillaged their land, left them destitute. And on their part, for their part, the Jews viewed the Gentiles as morally inferior. One saying at the time said that God made the Gentiles simply to fuel the fires of hell. Whoa, that's a lot of tension, don't you think? But this passage says that Jesus made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And probably that verse is referring to the temple in Jerusalem, where there was a big wall around the sanctuary that had a sign on it that said, foreigners keep out. But what this passage says is that through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles can now come together in that same sanctuary. And that's part of why we need church. You see, church was not an optional thing for Jesus. He always intended us to be in community. He didn't provide a self-study option for following him. He meant us to be in community even with, actually especially with, people who irritate us. Church is the one place where the person I least want to see is always there. And that's good because we find that through Jesus we can be reconciled. So if someone in this church irritates you, great, we're doing our job. Right? Yep. Maybe it's one of the pastors. Well, we're glad to provide that service for you. Because Jesus can do what we humans can't imagine. Tear down those walls. How? Well, Paul goes on to say that Jesus accomplished this by setting aside the law with its commands and regulations to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, when it says Jesus set aside the law, that does not mean he gave us license to sin because sin hurts, our, hurts us and hurts other people. What it's saying is that Jesus paid the price for our sins. We have been forgiven and all of us needed that because we've all sinned, which means we cannot judge each other. I got stuff, you got stuff, all God's children got stuff. And church is the place where God's stuffy people come to get unstuffed. Right? And, and all of us need that. The one thing we all have in common is we are messed up sinners in need of God's grace. And that similarity trumps all of our differences. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody is better than anybody else in here. Nobody is better than anybody else. And when they understood that, even Jews and Gentiles who had hated each other for centuries were able to come together and love each other. Paul said that Jesus' purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. I love that. As Jesus didn't create a separate church for Jews and a separate church for Gentiles, what he did was he created a new kind of person. Social historians sometimes refer to early Christians as the third race because they incorporated everyone, Jews, Gentiles, male, female, rich, poor. They became a new kind of person. I get a, a visual example of this every day in my kids. As you know, my wife is Chinese-American, which means that my kids don't look a thing like me. Right? Her genes dominated, I except in my son. If you, actually, if you compare him to pictures of me when I was his, his age, he actually has a lot of my same facial features. He, he looks like me if I were Chinese. <laughs> and in a way, that's what Jesus did in the early church. He united two very different kinds of people into one new humanity. We are meant to be one new humanity, one new kind of person through the power of Jesus' cross by the fact that we all needed to be forgiven. We humans divide ourselves off. That's what we can imagine. But Jesus unites. 
I heard on the radio recently how there's an increasing number of Israelis and Palestinians who are becoming Christians and forming a church together and worshiping together. And if they can do that, then surely the cross can reconcile us over our differences, whatever they are, social, racial, worship styles, whatever. To whom do you need to be reconciled? Jesus gives you the power to do that. And that's what the church was meant to be, a reconciling, unifying force. And when that happens, it is one of the surest signs that Jesus is real because it is more than we can imagine. I read an interview with an African-American pastor who had one of the first multiracial churches in the Deep South long before civil rights. And the interviewer asked him, well, how did your church get integrated? Was it the Supreme Court? And the pastor said, Supreme Court? Why would Christians need the Supreme Court to tell us that black folk and white folk ought to be all together? Good question. The interviewer said, well, then how did it happen? And the preacher said, well, when the old preacher died, they couldn't get anyone else to preach. So I told the deacons that I'd preach. Since they couldn't find someone else, they said, okay. So I got up the next Sunday, opened the Bible to the verse that says, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Jesus. So I preached on how Jesus makes all kinds of people one. When I finished, the deacons told me they didn't want to hear that kind of preaching no more. <laughs> and the interviewer asked, well, what did you do? And the pastor said, I fired them deacons. <laughs> if a man's not going to deke, he ought to get fired. And the interviewer said, well, why didn't they fire you? And he said, they didn't hire me. They couldn't fire me. <laughs> Once I found out what bothered those people, I gave it to them week after week. I put the knife in the same place every Sunday. I love that. The interviewer said, and they put up with it? And the preacher said, hmm, not really. I preached that church down to four people. <laughs> Sometimes revival happens not when people come in, but when they go out. <laughs> After that, we decided that we were going to build a church on people who were actually serious about following Jesus. And that's when it started to grow. It grew because there is something so powerful when you see Jesus uniting what society divides. Only Jesus can do it, and it's beyond what we can imagine. Church is a place where we find our adventure. Church is a place that we are united in our diversity, which means that finally church is a place of belonging. You belong. The passage begins by saying, at one time you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. But then it ends by saying, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That is, in these verses, there is a movement from foreigners to family. That no matter who we are or what we've done, no matter our failures or our screw-ups, no matter how dirty our uniform gets from the game of life, Jesus brings those of us who are far away from him close to him and puts us together in one family where we can be fully known and fully loved. And all of us belong. We all have a place. I have a friend who says that if the church is the body of Christ, then I'm the appendix. Nobody knows my function, but occasionally I flare up and I have to be removed. <laughs> no such thing in the body of Christ. We all have a home together in him. When we were in Rwanda, we met a man named Teo, who's one of the most amazing, one of the strongest, bravest men I've ever met. And during the genocide, several of his family members were killed. And Teo himself had to hide under a garbage pile for almost a month. 
And at the time, he wasn't a Christian, but there were several close calls where he barely escaped with his life. And after the genocide, he began to feel God's presence in his life, began to hear his voice, and became convinced that God had spared him for a reason. And through church, through the community he was a part of, through prayer, Teo began to experience God's love in a way that completely changed his life. After one of the men who had hunted him down was released from prison for his crimes, Teo went to find him, but not for revenge. Teo believed that one of the reasons this man tried to kill him during the genocide was because he was so poor, the man was so poor, and also that this man had been brainwashed by government propaganda that had incited him. So Teo decided that this man needed a home. So with his own money and his own labor, Teo built this man a house, this man that had hunted him down. And the result for Teo was freedom. Rather than being consumed by anger and bitterness, Teo was set free to bring healing to a man who had done horrible things to be sure, but who was still a child of God. And who through Teo experienced God's love and forgiveness in a way that helped set him free from the guilt and the shame that the perpetrators of the genocide often feel. Teo is one of the bravest men that I have ever met. It's incredibly inspiring to be around him. He just makes you want to be like him. Teo found a home in Jesus because Jesus found a home in Teo. And Teo found his adventure in God's rescue operation to this planet, bringing reconciliation and healing to the wounds that have plagued Rwanda for years. That's church how Jesus intended it to be. A place where we find adventure, a place of reconciliation, and a place where everybody belongs. So how about you? Do you want to be part of a church like that? You know, in many ways as a church, I think we are right on track with what Jesus intended. But we're not perfect. And I think I know you well enough to know that where we aren't perfect, you want to press on to become that community of people who link arms together to bring healing and reconciliation to each other and to a hurting world. Churchianity appeals to nobody. But church the way Jesus intended it is almost irresistible. Someone sent me a story about their eight-year-old niece who went to church with her parents one time instead of going to Sunday school. And in that church, they served communion in, you know, in those tiny little cups with the little strips of bread, as we do here, because it's more efficient. It's just easier that way. But, you know, symbolically, it is a little weird, you have to admit, right? I mean, the body of Christ eked out in tiny sanitary portions just for you, right? <laughs> Bad metaphor. So this little girl saw that, and she turned to her mom and said, oh, the snack in children's church is way better, and we get a lot more juice. <laughs> That's sort of what this passage is on about. Church should not be boring or conventional. It should have a lot more juice. And there is nothing so dangerous to the devil's plans as a church that is fully yielded to Jesus. And a fully yielded church is anything but boring. It's the most radical, counterculture, powerful force there is. It always has been. Look how it started. Look at the very beginning of the church. Without any political power at all, 11 fishermen who said they saw a dead man come back to life changed the world. Not through politics, not through power, but because if you told them to be quiet, they kept telling the story. Throw them in prison, they'd convert the jailer. Whip them and they'd sing hymns. Starve them, they'd share what little they had with everyone else. Persecute them, they would consider it joy to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Hate them, they'd love you back, exclude them out, they'd invite you in. Kill them and a hundred more would rise to take their place. You can't stop something like that. It is too infectious. 
And this is how the world is changed. Not by might, not by power, not by politics, but by the Holy Spirit of Jesus changing the world one human heart at a time because of the ways that we, his followers, love each other and serve the world. You can call it a lot of things, but boring it is not. And that's the church Jesus intended. And it happened then, and it's happening still, and I am betting that you want to be a part of it. So Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, thank you for the ways you have led us as a church in the paths that you have intended. And Lord, where we have strayed from those paths, forgive us and heal us and call us anew. And we will respond with joyful hearts to your call to be the kind of people you call us individually and together to be that church that heals this hurting world. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.